0: resuming uh, our series through Ephesians. So if you can, in your mind, uh, remember all the way back through the fog of the holidays, all the way back to just after Thanksgiving, uh, we were working through the book of Ephesians, and we covered the first three chapters of Ephesians uh, last fall, and then this morning we took a little break for Christmas, and then uh, this uh, this morning we're going to be... Jumping back into the book of Ephesians, we're going to be starting in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. So if you have a copy of Scripture, uh, you want to uh, pull that up with me, that would be great. Before we do that, uh, before we jump in, I'm going to pray for us, uh, and, then we'll, and then we'll move forward. Okay? Father, you are a good and a gracious king. You are the shepherd who defends us. You are, uh, you are um, the shepherd who has defeated through the death of Jesus Uh, In our place, you have defeated all our sin. And so we now, as your people, as one small, tiny, local expression of your global, universal family, uh, we now come together and glory and delight and rejoice in that grace. And, Father, we need more than anything this morning to be nourished uh, and sustained by that grace as we come to your word. And so, Lord, would you do that? Lord, if we need to be uh, convicted... Uh, Would you do that? If we need to be comforted, would you bring by the power of your Spirit assurance in your gospel? If we need to be challenged and inspired to live a life boldly uh, for you, Lord, would you by the the power of your Spirit uh, do that even now? We trust in the power of the Spirit to accompany uh, the preaching and the study of your word to change us even in our seats uh, to make our lives more uh, like uh, the life of Jesus. And so, would, uh, we, so we commit this time to you uh, asking that you would do that. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alrighty, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about my dreams. Uh, my dream weekend uh, would consist of me being in my house for the entirety of the weekend, never leaving, and never having to interact with another uh, human being. Uh, I am a card-carrying homebody, an introvert. Uh, I like doing my own thing. I like eating the food I like to eat. I like listening to the podcasts that I like to listen to. I like just hanging out all, all weekend in my PJs. I like working on the projects that I want to work uh, work on, uh, and that's kind of a universal experience. We wake up, and we're immediately thinking about what we got going on, our priorities, what we, need to, what we need to do for the day. When was the last time you looked at a picture, a group picture, like you're, you're in a group picture, a family picture, or a picture with friends, and your eyes weren't immediately drawn to yourself in that picture, right? Isn't that the case? Like whenever we see a picture of a group, like who's the first person that we look at? We look at ourselves in that, in that picture, and then we look, at, we look at other people. Or when was the last time you made a significant life decision, like a, who to marry? what job to take, what house to buy, uh, how to use a significant amount of money, what to spend it on. And you made that decision, uh, that, uh, and it wasn't based primarily on what would be best for you and what would make you happy. Uh, we are individualists who are prone to live individualistic, isolated, compartmentalized lives. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, how is that working out for you? How's that working out for us? Many people in our society have noticed that uh, this extreme individualism that characterizes our modern American, Western, especially Alaskan uh, culture, uh, we've noticed that this individualism is beginning to have some negative effects on us. It's leading to increased anxiety. It's leading to increased loneliness, to political division, to dissatisfaction in our jobs when all we have to work for is our, our own Selves and our own nuclear family, and we don't, our, our jobs and our uh, um, our vocations are completely disconnected from our community and the broader life. Like it, that leads to less meaning and less purpose and less satisfaction uh, in our pursuits. So it leads to more disconnected lives from our neighbors and from our family members. Uh, Monica and I, we have um, a whole corner of our a whole corner of our counter in our kitchen little section in our, in our kitchen, that, that's the corner where things go to die. So it's the corner that's on the other side of the fridge. It's got a less lit corner of our kitchen underneath the cabinets. And that's where all the, the mail that we get, that, because we're millennials, we don't read our mail. We just kind of set it over there and let it sit for a month or two and then or three. And then all, we're all the knickknacks on others. And uh, some of us are better at hiding that. We, we can make friends and have shells of relationships and shells of community, people at work, people at church that we kind of know, and, uh, and deceive ourselves in the community. Some of, uh, some of you, like me, are, I find it even harder to fake it. Uh, but either way, we, um, we put ourselves in the corner. And this, over time, individualism, isolation, and compartmentalism causes our decay. It causes our shriveling and death. But so often you and I settle for this kind of life. Individualism is one of the central tenets, core values of what it means to be an Alaskan. We like to do things our own way, on our own time, uh, without having anybody uh, uh, put their nose into it. But at the end of the day, day, individualism only tears us down. It corrupts and it decays like rotting food or like a dead houseplant. It diminishes the full dignity that we were intended to experience by Christ himself. So I want to ask you again. How is it working out for you? How is it going for you? Uh, This morning as we look at Ephesians 4. We're going to see Paul invite us into something different, into something better, into a higher calling, and to live in light of a better reality. So before we do that, I just want to remind us where we've been a little bit in the first uh, three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul has been expounding on and, uh, and, and, and explaining the heights and the depths of God's lavish grace that's show, that shown to sinners like you and me. Uh, God's lavish grace that uh, through a crucified and resurrected Jesus, He now sits enthroned above all things, reigning over the entire cosmos, and has created what what he, what Paul says is now one man, one family, one unified body through His death. He has made peace where there was uh, he, he, uh, where there was hostility, and now. So He's been explaining all this theology uh, and all this gospel to us, and now He makes in in chapter. One, Chapter 4, verse 1, he makes a hard pivot. Uh, Paul gives us, um, Paul gives us not, uh, not so much theology, but the practical implications of our theology. So let me read that. Uh, Ringing and stewing in a big old pot of gospel soup that's just getting mixed up, and it's, it's rich, flavorful. And then after, after three chapters of this, sitting on the stovetop of the gospel, marinating in the riches of grace this soup, Paul's soup, begins to boil over. Boil anybody else like an un, uh, a neglectful cook like Paul is? Like just, it's, just, it's sitting on the pot and it boils over. And the first thing to boil, to bubble out, is this paragraph right here. And he starts off, after just highlighting the depths of the gospel, he starts off saying, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. In other words, this is a call to, 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 to it's an invitation upward, up into the light. Now some of us, we hear uh, we hear Paul say, "I urge you to walk worthy," and it, and it can think we can think like, "Well, Paul is like shaking his finger. Now you better shape up and, and live, uh, li- you know, live better." But what Paul is doing is it's, it's not it's not shaming or, wh- or finger wagging. He's he's lifting us up into a better kind of life. He's incur- he's inviting us into a life uh, into the full dignity of the gospel, a, a, a life that's fitting of the gospel of, of the resurrected Jesus who, is, who has selflessly died for sinners like you and me. And specifically, it's a call up out of the decay of individualism and into the healthy, life-giving call of community. And there's two aspects of this call, of this community, that he, uh, uh, that he outlines for us. Uh, the, first, the first thing that we're going to look at is the path to a worthy life. And that's in verses 2 and 3. And then in the second half of this paragraph, verses 4 through 6, we'll see the power to a worthy life. So, first thing, the path to a worthy life. What does it look like to live a life that's worthy of the gospel's call? Well, Paul breaks it down with five parallel phrases that he lists one right after the other in in verses 2 and 3. We are to live with all humility. Or as Paul puts it in Philippians, we are to think of others as more important than ourselves. That's a tough question to ask yourself. How are you doing in that? Secondly, uh, I heard one pastor say humility, or um, gentleness is humility in the face of conflict. Patience is humility extended over a long period of time. Um, and um, so uh, patience, and then he unpacks this idea of patience, the next phrase, bearing with one another, literally enduring with one another. Uh, so that's warm, affectionate uh, language for you. You have to endure with one another. Um, And then finally, lastly, making every effort uh, to keep the unity of the Spirit. So do you see this? This is the path here that that Paul lays out, very logical, of what it means uh, to live a life worthy of the gospel. And here's how I'd summarize where this path uh, will lead us. The high and worthy call of the gospel must lead us to the lowliest acts of love. The lofty, glorious, worthy, holy call of the gospel should compel you and I to undignified, lowly love for one another, and this should be shocking to us for two reasons. Firstly, Paul uh, he doesn't let us stay in the abstract with the with with these things because that's what time you read a list like this and list list like this in the Bible, all these good virtues, love, gentleness, patience, faithfulness. Like it's really easy for us to leave them in that realm of hypothetical theory. Um, like, Yeah, those are good virtues that we should all uh, aspire to, and isn't it good for us to come to church and remember all these good things that people can do? Uh, but Paul doesn't let us do that. He doesn't let us keep it in the abstract. He tells us, firstly... Uh, specifically, who we are to love. Notice verse three. He says we are to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another. That's how. We, that's how. We, so we get, Paul gives us a very specific, concrete group of people toward which we are primarily supposed to show this kind of love toward. He doesn't let us. He doesn't let us leave love in the abstract. So then, who is one another? Who? What is that group of people? Well, remember, Paul would have uh, uh, would have originally sent this letter he would have really, uh, originally intended this letter to be read in a church gathering in Ephesus this is this is a letter that would have been passed around to all the little house churches all the little churches that are in and around uh, Ephesus. so uh, we have lots of opportunities for that okay so who do we love a specific group of people messy church people but then secondly when do we love when do we love he's, he's very specific about that um, in particular, we are to love messy church people in moments of messy conflict, in moments of messy conflict. Paul uses the word worthy, which we think of high and dignified, airy, lofty kind of, but the worthy life that he describes here, it's not glamorous or dignified. If you think about each one of these characters' traits, they are messy, they are costly, and they are all born out really in the context of conflict. Think about it for a minute. The only time you ever you and I can ever really genuinely exercise humility is when we're in a situation when we want the same thing as someone else and we both can't have it. All right? So when Monica and I, when there's one piece of pizza left in the box and Monica and I both want it, like the, the, the humble thing to do is to say, okay, she gets the piece of pizza, right? Uh, and, that's, that's, um, and so suddenly, humility starts to feel a lot less abstract, like, oh, I'm a humble person, uh, and it starts to seem a lot less attractive. Uh, and similarly, the only time that we can, I can really be gentle is when someone slices me or overlooks me or ignores me, and I have the right to retaliate. Uh, I have the right to bow up, or I have the right to be manipulative or raise my voice. And in those moments, taking one on the chin and not saying anything about it, like, that's not very appealing. Gentleness, patience, humility, those are rarely, if ever, the attractive option in, in relationships. But Paul doesn't call us to community, because it's the easiest path. We are, comm- we are not commanded to, to lowly love because we're perfect and, and it'll all be fun. In fact, the opposite is true. And I would even phrase it this way. If you rarely or ever find yourself in situations of conflict or tension with people in this local church, if you rarely or ever find yourself in, in, in situations of conflict or tension with people, I'm a very nerdy guy, uh, and uh, which I'm a nerd, but not in that way, and... Um, and uh, he, uh, he, yeah, And then he was, he was flaky. Just seemed flaky. a Characteristic I really don't like in, in people. And then, um, and then the second time that I met him, he forgot my name. He called me some other name. And, and, so that, so I was like, okay, whatever, whatever with this guy. I'm, I'm done with him. I don't need to like, uh, you know, uh, pr- pursue a relationship with him or anything like that. Uh, but, uh, but if I would have checked out or disengaged from that relationship. I would have missed out on what would actually become one of my closest friendships of that season of my life while we were living in South Carolina because he became one of my best friends and I would have missed out on all the blessings of life in relationship with him. But that's my but that's our tendency is to is to, is to check out or disengage. We live in a in a church culture where it's kind of bent, built into us to if we don't like the way things are going on in, in one body, well, we just hop out and, and, go, uh, and, go, and go to the next body, which there are times and seasons uh, and reasons for that that are completely justified. But, but it's become so built into our culture uh, that, we, uh, that we just always opt out for the let's disengage route rather than the let's press into conflict, let's press into pain uh, together. So before we move on to the next point, I want to ask yourself, what's holding you back? What is keeping you from trusting Jesus and following him into the inconvenient and uncomfortable but beautiful, real flesh and blood relationships with this body? What is it? Is it fear? Is it anxiety? Is it busyness or a sense of busyness? Is it shame? He says, strive to maintain or keep the spirit's unity through the bond of peace. And this is really important because maintenance is a lot different than manufacturing unity. So we're called to maintain unity, not manufacture unity. If you tell me to maintain my car, I can put oil in it. I can or, you know, have to change the oil. I can make sure the brakes are good. I can make sure the tire pressure is great. I can maintain a vehicle. I might not be quite as disciplined as I ought to be, but I can basically maintain a vehicle. If you ask me to manufacture a vehicle, I would not know like, the first step in that other than to you know, call Toyota or something. I don't know. I, like, but because maintenance is a whole lot different than uh, than manufacturing. Uh, maintenance still takes a lot of work. It takes work for me to maintain our our vehicles. And uh, Paul says that we need to strive and to make every effort to maintain unity. But that's very different uh, than manufacture. We're simply called to maintain to keep up or cultivate the unity that's already been accomplished for us. And this is really important as because one of the practical implications of this means that. You and I aren't responsible for creating or manufacturing a bond or connection with every single person in this room. right? That would be impossible. So all the introverts here like me can, can take a sigh of relief. But honestly, that would be a, a burden, uh, an impossible burden for anybody in our church to know, to know every other person in a church in the intimate, sacrificial way that Paul is describing. Instead, we can relax because the bond, Paul tells us, has already been established. It's already been manufactured and created through his death. He has now made one new man, as the way he puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. Which means that instead of worrying about connecting with a large number of people, we are called to do the hard work of maintaining deep, affectionate, committed, sacrificial relationships with those that we do know, with those that are, that are within our spheres of influence. And that's why we have Peninsula Grace like, we love getting together on Sunday morning. We love uh, our, our, our Sunday morning gatherings. We put very little stock in a, in a Sunday morning gathering for our ability to help one another follow Jesus. Like, there's very little weight in, in a Sunday morning gathering. But we place a huge premium on... On community groups and discipleship triangles, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. So seven times, one after one after one after one. And the effect of this, kind of this all this repetition, is meant to help us see that in all these ways, everyone in this body is exactly the same. No matter what ethnicity, no matter what your political stance, no matter your background, no matter your, uh, your income level, no matter your personality type, in these seven most essential areas we are all the same and we share all things in common. There is one body. We are all in the same family that's been purchased by the blood of Jesus. We have each been given the same Holy Spirit uh, to indwell and enliven us. We each share the same calling, the same destiny with the same Hope. We follow the same Lord and Master. We all hold to the same faith, the same same essential gospel message. We've both enacted that gospel. We've all enacted that gospel through the same act of baptism. There's one path of entry into the one body. Uh, there is one God, the God of Democrats, the God of Republicans, the God over rich people and poor people. I know it's hard to believe, but he is. Uh, the God of over introverts, the God of extroverts. And Paul is putting... Uh, The question before us, if we have all these things in common, what could ever justify separation? What could ever justify division? Instead, we need to remember or to remind ourselves that when we're frustrated with someone in this body, when we're annoyed or feel sinned against, when we're locked in a disagreement or we're tempted to pull away from community or relationship, we need to remind ourselves that this person is someone with whom I share all of the most important things in common with. We may vote differently. We may educate our kids different. We may like different worship styles. We may be frustrated that they don't show up to meetings on time or talk too much or too little or too personal or, uh, or whatever. But we share the same calling, the same spirit, the same master, and the same gospel. So what else is there? All right, so remember what our responsibility is and is not. We are my own sphere, uh, my own interests. Uh, but uh, when when my heart is drawn to consider the king the king who humbled himself to a shameful death who, who considered my interests more important than his own that is when my arrogant heart that's when my arrogant heart can be softened to the di- difficult people at church i'm not i'm not a gentle person but when i consider that in my open rebellion and hostility toward God, when I was shaking my fist in sin and uh, and, and spitting in his face, he did not retaliate in kind, but he gently restored me to himself like a good shepherd. And that is when my combative, defensive heart can care for those who sin against me. I'm not a patient person, but when I consider how long God has put up with my many repeated boned head mistakes making the same failures, the same sins, the same mistakes over and over and over again, I can begin to put up with the bad habits and the repeated failures of others. And I don't bear with people who let me down or who sin against me. I'm much more likely just to disengage. Uh, But when I think about the endurance of Christ, who faithfully took on the weight of all my sin onto himself and loved me all the way to the bitter end, absorbing the wrath and the consequences and all the weight of my sin and failures onto himself to the point of death. When he cried, it is finished. He did not pull himself away. He did not disengage from me, though it was extremely costly for him to win me. And when I think of that enduring grace, I can slowly begin to bear with others. The worthy king lowered himself to an undignified death in order to raise us to new heights of undignified love for each other. So let's go on that gospel, church. Let's let's let it pull us up out of the decay of individual. It means to live a, a life that's full of the worth and the dignity and the value and the beauty that you have called us into, a life of affectionate, committed love for one another. Lord, I pray where there's uh, where there's folks in this room who are wondering. I don't even know what the what the next step is. I want community. I want relationships. I want to take that next step, but I don't know what it is. Lord, would you uh, provide clear next steps into into the, into the body of the Christ uh, Christ here? And for those of us who are admittedly just apathetic, our hearts are dull to the to the, to a desire for for uh, for this kind of uh, uh, for this kind of relationship, Lord, would you stir by the power of your Spirit? Would you, um, would you work and warm and soften our dull, apathetic hearts uh, for your glory and for our joy? And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.